Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In part three of his On the Basis of Morality, the second main set of topics that Arthur Schopenhauer is going to examine are what he calls anti-moral incentives. And he's going to begin by talking about egoism, or you could call it self-centeredness, selfishness. And he tells us that the chief and fundamental incentive in man, as in the animal, is egoism. And he gives it a very quick gloss there. The craving for existence and well-being. This drive for continuing one's existence and for making one's existence better to enjoy it. And he goes on in a little bit more detail shortly after that, when he says, by its nature, egoism is boundless. Man has the unqualified desire to preserve his existence. So there we see that part again, to keep it absolutely free from pain and suffering. Now that's a new part to it as well, which includes all want and privation, right? So now we've got two parts to it. He desires to have the greatest possible amount of well-being, said just a little bit earlier, and every pleasure of which he is capable. In fact, where possible, he attempts to develop within himself fresh capacities for enjoyment. So we've got a lot of moving parts to this fundamental drive and incentive to our actions, our motivational structure. Here, Schopenhauer is not saying something that is radically new. I mean, there's other people who have said similar things, some of them even using this basis to later on argue that we can extend this to others, to all humanity in general. The Stoics, for example, in their conception of oikiosis, we begin with our own desire for self-preservation and making our being better. And very quickly, this extends to other human beings. For Schopenhauer, no. We are sort of stuck within our own little world of this, as he's going to say later on. In his subjective view, a man's own self assumes these colossal proportions. What is that? Everyone is in all in all to himself. He finds himself to be the holder and possessor of all reality. Nothing can be more important to him than his own self. And then he says, in the objective view, it shrinks to almost nothing to a thousandth millionth part of the present human race, right? So we've got this, uh, he, he uses microcosm and macrocosm there. And so this is something really quite important in Schopenhauer's ethics, not because he's advocating this, but because he's saying, this is what we got to deal with. And he goes on and he says, we can make a distinction here. The word eigennut self-interest denotes egoism insofar as this is under the guidance 
of the faculty of reason. So this is something distinctively human. Egoism, all animals have that, including us human beings. Self-interest, that's us human beings because we have a faculty of reason. What does this allow us to do? By means of reflection, this faculty enables egoism to pursue its purposes systematically in a reasonable fashion. Thinking about priorities, planning for the future, considering means and ends, learning lessons. I mean, animals can do that to some extent, but not to the extent that we can. And so he says, we call animals egoistic, but not self-interested. And I'm going to retain this word egoism for the general concept. And then he says something very interesting here. In the animal, as in man, this egoism is most intimately connected with their innermost core and essence. In fact, it is really identical with essence. This is at the core or the essence of what a human being is, qua human being. And he says, as a rule, therefore, all of a human being's actions spring from egoism. And we must try to explain a given action with this in mind. In fact, you know, when we try to direct a person towards some goal or another, we appeal to their egoism if we want it to be effective. And so then that's interesting. What else can we say about this? Well, what opposes a person's egoism, what it is that they desire, whether it's in terms of existence or even just like perceived threats to existence or their well-being, they're enjoying pleasures, they're avoiding pains and troubles. What opposes that is going to generate or create a counter response of affects and conflict. He says, everything opposing the strivings of his egoism excites his wrath, anger, and hatred. And he will attempt to destroy it as an enemy. And if possible, he wants to enjoy everything, to have everything. But as this is impossible, he wants to control everything. Now, you know, if there was only one human being in existence, maybe this wouldn't be that big of a problem. But if I'm egoistic in that way, and you're egoistic in that way, and we have to live together, you and I are going to sooner or later arrive at some conflicts, right? And so he says, everybody makes himself the center of the world and refers everything to himself. And then he says, there's no greater contrast than that between the profound and exclusive interest everyone takes in his own self and the indifference with which all others as a rule regard it. There's even a comic side to seeing this. We can look back and laugh at this. So what is going to oppose this egoism? He talks about the possibility of external forces. And so he says that egoism shows itself in everyday life, always peering out of some corner in spite of the politeness, which like a fig leaf is used to cover it up. Politeness is the conventional and systematic denial of egoism in the trifles of daily intercourse, certainly recognized as hypocrisy, yet called for and commended because what it conceals is so unpleasant, no one wants to see it. Uh, so there's that, right? And so we have the fear of social disapproval. We're nice to each other. We restrict our egoism. We also do so so that we don't get in trouble with the authorities, right? The state he's going to talk about quite a bit, which can punish us for doing injustice to other people. Now, if these factors go away, Schopenhauer says, watch and see what happens. People will behave in all sorts of completely self-interested ways if you don't oppose them. The other thing that could oppose it, though, is some sort of genuine 
moral incentive, as he says, where egoism is not opposed by an external force, which must include all fear of human or supernatural powers, or by a genuine moral incentive, it pursues its purposes without reserve. And without any checks, this would lead to the bellum omnium contra omnes. That is the war of all against all, a reference to Hobbes's state of nature in Leviathan. And, you know, we do see this happen in many cases. Schopenhauer is also going to talk about two important virtues here that he thinks are going to be central to morality and he's going to unpack later on in this part of his work. He talks about justice, the virtue of justice, and he says, which in my opinion is the first and really cardinal virtue, the virtue from which other virtues flow. And he says that this opposes egoism. Now, of course, many instances of doing justice to other people could in fact be just, you know, self, self-interested, right? I do so to avoid the state coming down on me. I don't steal my neighbor's goods. Well, that's not the virtue of justice. That's just doing justice. That's not yet having that as part of your motivational structure. Very important difference there. Another virtue that he brings up is philanthropy or loving kindness, which is opposed to ill will or spitefulness. And he's going to go into an analysis of this. Before we do that, though, before we look at that analysis, there is something that we want to highlight. So egoism, a little bit later on, he's going to talk about as a brutal, that's the word that he's using, root of bad actions. Of It's an anti-moral incentive or an anti-moral motivation, right? What does he mean by brutal? We often think of brutality and we equate it with something like cruelty, which Schopenhauer is going to say, no, no, that's something different here. It's behaving like an animal, just following out our own self-interest to the detriment of others, typically. Ill will is going to be a devilish, diabolical root. And that is something that, in many respects, I think you can say is only there for rational beings, human beings. And there's a difference in how they approach ends and means in this. He tells us, this is quite interesting, that the ways in which these work is a bit different. The end of egoism is to get what you want. And if other people get in the way, so much the worse for them, right? They should have known better than to oppose you. The end, the goal of ill will is harm to another, damaging another, hurting another, depriving them, humiliating them. So this is different. The egoist... The person who's being driven by primarily egoistic motives, in this case, selfish motives, may humiliate somebody else, but it's to get something else. Whereas the ill will person will do so just to, to hurt the other person for that point. Consider how it, it might work if you wanted to argue somebody out of bullying other people. If they were motivated by egoism, which could inf- include you know, the, the need for security on their own part, well, you can try to provide them with a different means to the end that they want. Somebody who has ill will, they want to hurt that other person. They want them humiliated. And you're not going to actually argue them out of it, except perhaps by guiding them to do the same thing to others. Now, how does ill will arise? This is quite interesting. So egoism is just 
part of our nature, right? How do we wind up with ill will? He says that it happens through several different things. One is when we wind up in conflict with other people, right? He says that ill will in its lower degrees is very frequent, quite usual and easily reaches the higher. It arises from the inevitable collisions of egoism that occur at every step. So, we can start out with a war of all against all, or let's just call it conflict between people over their egoistic desires and plans. And then inevitably the, the, the fighting against each other, the friction, the conflict is going to produce in some of them ill will. You stop just seeing the other as an obstacle and you start seeing them as an antagonist that you want to destroy in some way. Another very interestingly arises when we witness the faults of others and perhaps even ourselves. He says, it's also objectively stirred by the sights of vices, faults, weaknesses, follies, shortcomings, and imperfections of every kind, which everyone more or less exhibits to others at any rate, occasionally. So these could be as trivial as like the dislike of how somebody eats. You're with them for a while and you're like, can't you keep your mouth shut when you're chewing or something like that. And then you, you start to really dislike them and maybe hate them and say a cutting thing, right? There's one other thing that he brings up here as well, envy. He says that envy is one of the main sources of ill will, or perhaps envy itself is ill will that is excited by the happiness, possessions, or advantages of others. It's most poisonous and implacable when directed to personal qualities, since here the envious man is left without any hope. And it's at the same time, it's most vile because he hates what he should love and respect. We see other people having something good and we feel ill will towards them as a result. A little bit later on, he's going to analyze envy and he also calls this schadenfreude. You're all familiar with this term, I think, by now because people are always, oh, the Germans have this word that we can't translate into English. No, we can translate it just fine. Malicious joy in the sufferings of others or the damage of others or the humiliation of others. He says, in some respects, the opposite of envy is the malicious joy at the misfortune of others. Yet to feel envy is human, but to indulge in such malicious joy is fiendish and diabolical. There's no more infallible sign of a thoroughly bad heart than an inclination to sheer and undisguised malignant joy of this kind. And then he goes on and he says something really curious. Envy and malicious joy are merely theoretical, right? In practice, they become malice and cruelty. And here's where he talks about the difference between ends, right? Malice and cruelty, the pains and sufferings of others are an end in, in themselves and their attainment is a pleasure for the malicious or cruel person. The maxim of malice is injure all people as much as you can. He provides some brief sketches saying, you know, we could do an entire discussion of this, but I'm just gonna list these off at this time, what arises from these two fundamental forces? He says, such a system would derive from egoism, greed, intemperance, lust, selfishness, avarice, 
covetousness, injustice, hardness of heart, pride, arrogance, and so on. So obviously this is not a comprehensive list, but this gives you an idea of what falls under egoism. What arises from ill will? He says, envy, disaffection, ill will, malice, malicious joy at another's misfortune, prying curiosity, slander, insolence, petulance, hatred, anger, treachery, perfidy, thirst for revenge, cruelty, and so on. So these can lead to a lot of important problems. And then he, you know, is going to finish up by saying, okay, is this all that we've got going on with human beings? You know, we can try to restrict them. And a lot of what we call justice, which is not really the virtue of justice, and a lot of actually what we call philanthropy or loving kindness, which is not really the virtue of it, just certain actions. You know, we can restrict this sort of thing quite a bit through making people afraid by telling them all sorts of stories about the gods and what they're going to do. But these are really just appeals to egoism. Be good or the gods are going to take vengeance and impose justice upon you. That's just an appeal to you getting what it is that you want or not getting what it is that you don't want from other people. And he says, what would get us beyond this motives of such a kind always rooted in mere egoism? And he says, here we actually have to think philosophically, right? And we also have to be very careful. He says, many a man can give an account to himself of his noblest actions only through motives of the kind previous previously described, but it is certain that he nevertheless acts for much nobler and purer incentives, though it may be much more difficult to make these clear. Out of direct love for his neighbor, he actually does what he is only able to explain by the command of his God, but philosophy can actually look at the nature of human beings independent of all mythical interpretations, religious dogmas, and transcendent hypotheses. There's a rejection of Kantian ethics and other ethics that, that's built into this as well. He tells us philosophy demands to see it. What's the it? This genuine morality demands to see it demonstrated in external or internal experience. So this is a philosophical task. He's not yet telling us what this would be, but he's suggesting that there is something that can go beyond this and resist these motives. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.